Hallow's Eve is upon us. And it's a very different vibe from last year when the COVID-19 pandemic thwarted many typical Halloween celebrations around the capital region. This year, though, many of them are back. Trick or treat. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. If she were to lose the Democratic primary, uh, for governor that is, she could find herself, you know, unemployed. We'll find out about the epic battle the city of Mechanicville is fighting with a few eager beavers bent on damming up the city's water supply. This particular family of beavers really wants to turn this particular stream into a pond. And what's your favorite scary movie? We'll give you a few suggestions for a creepy Halloween movie night this weekend. Everybody's got a different definition, I think, of what horror film is. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's go over what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. It is time once again to go over the top headlines from this week with Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. All right, let's start at the top. Election Day is coming up next week, and we've got some pretty big election news, although it's not necessarily for this year's election. So so give me the latest there. Right. And Election Day, of course, means different things now, because with early voting, you could say that Election Day really began, um, you know, almost a, almost a week ago. So True. This is true which means that there are races that could be close enough that we might not know on uh, election night coming up on Tuesday who the winner is. But I think most of the races um, should be determined. Now, in voting that is taking place right now and which will culminate on Tuesday, I would say in the capital region, the races that people are kind of watching the most closely might be up in Saratoga Springs, where a number of offices are turning over, including um, the role of mayor and the role of public safety commissioner. Both of those, of course, are significant in the context of unrest that has riven, rattled Saratoga Springs over the course of the last year and a half or so um, in terms of law enforcement um, clashes and uh, divisiveness with Black Lives Matter protesters. I would say the race for mayor in Albany is, uh, you know, a a three-way matchup with one energetic uh, write-in candidate, but it is not seen as particularly competitive. The vast registration advantage that Democrats enjoy in Albany means that it is quite likely that Kathy Sheehan is going to be reelected to a third term, which of course is uh, longevity that she initially did not expect uh, she would seek. She said she was going to be two terms and out, but she said the impact of the pandemic was such that she felt like she had to stick around to see through a lot of a lot of the initiatives and aid uh, distribution that has only begun to be um, put in place over the course of the last couple of months or so. 
Now, of course, Albany has a long history of uh, multi-term mayors, so this would not be a new thing for us. More than a century, yes, indeed, of Democratic mayors. So we shall see what happens after Tuesday. But I would not want to bet money on that streak being broken. Meanwhile, despite the fact that we are more than a year away from statewide elections, we are living uh, right now, we're talking Thursday morning, in the expectation that Letitia James, our state attorney general, is going to announce a run for the governorship, which of course means that she would take on uh, Kathy Hochul, who is of course now the incumbent, as well as Jamani Williams, the progressive um, New York City candidate, uh, as well as of course the announced Republican who has been kind of uh, anointed by the party, at least at this point, and that's um, Representative Lee Zeldin from out on Long Island. But it also, of course, sets up uh, not only a scramble for the Democratic nomination for governor, but also would clear the field for a new attorney general's race. Because, of course, if you're Tish James, you've pretty much got to declare that you're going for one seat or the other. And if she were to lose the Democratic primary uh, for governor, that is, she could find herself, you know, unemployed come January 2023. So uh, exciting times and uh, setting us up for 12 everlasting months of election adventure. Indeed. And in the short term, you can look out for our coverage coming up next week after the conclusion of Election Day on Tuesday. All right. Moving down to Ulster County now in the Hudson Valley, where a New York state trooper has been charged with murder. What's happening there? Yeah, a state trooper named uh, Christopher Baldner has been accused of causing the death of an 11-year-old named Monica Good when her family's vehicle flipped over as it fled what sounds like it was a very bizarre traffic stop. Basically, according to court papers, pepper spray was deployed. Good's, uh, I believe, father drove away from the scene in alarm and was rammed by Trooper Baldner, which caused the vehicle to flip over and resulted in the death of this 11-year-old. According to court documents, Baldner had done this previously, basically a ramming a vehicle during an incident. It's exceedingly disturbing. This was a case brought by Attorney General Tish James, whose office under an executive order that was put in place by former Governor Andrew Cuomo is empowered to investigate the deaths of unarmed civilians in encounters with police. And this definitely fits the bill. It's a very disturbing story without a doubt. Indeed. Check out timesunion.com for more there. Uh, Moving all the way up to Boston Spa, the mayor has stepped down. What's happening there? Yeah, Larry Woolbright who is the mayor of that fine suburban community, accused village trustees of blocking him at every turn. He's a Republican, and he uh, specifically blamed uh, his decision on two of the four Democrats who serve on uh, the village board and says that, you know, they want things like uh, bike lanes that the, the village simply can't afford. A very strange situation that was unexpected, to say the least, to be announced at a meeting, a Monday night meeting of the board, and the mayor announces that he's stepping down. All right. What happens with that vacancy? Who fills it? Well, it will fall upon his deputy, who is Christine Fitzpatrick. And according to the Conference of Mayors, 
Fitzpatrick can act in Woolbright's uh, stead up until the uh, the next election. And if the appointee is a trustee, which Fitzpatrick is, the next election will basically fill that trustee's seat. All right. Well, moving over to RPI, uh, RPI officials have been accused of suppressing negative climate survey results. What's happening there? Yeah, this is a great um, investigative piece from Rachel Silverstein, our education reporter, who noted that this uh, survey that was conducted uh, with RPI's blessing by an alumnus named Howard Deutsch, who runs a company called Quantisoft, concluded that RPI is suffering from a culture of sort of excessive control, of fear, all of it kind of coming down from the top. And he presented, Deutsch presented this data to the school. And the conclusion that came back from a human resources officer named Curtis Powell was that it was too negative. So Deutsch, uh, fearing that uh, this information was going to be suppressed or sanitized, sent it out to the full board of trustees. And uh, that apparently was not taken kindly by Mr. Powell, who had a discussion with Deutsch that Deutsch described as uh, not cordial. So, you know, this continues criticism that has been levied against um, Shirley Ann Jackson, the longtime president of RPI, that she operates in an almost dictatorial fashion. You know, these criticisms have been coming from student groups, from faculty groups um, for a very long time. President Jackson, who is one of the most highly remunerated higher education leaders in the nation, is close to stepping down. So this is sort of an indication of what the next leader of RPI is going to be up against, potentially. All right. We'll watch out for more news to come from that corner of our region. And it's actually a pretty good segue because we also uh, reported this week, or I don't know if we reported it, we, we aggregated it, that there is a longtime myth that one of the buildings on the RPI campus is extremely haunted, which is a great segue to Halloween happening this weekend. And before I let you go, I want to know, what is your favorite horror film in honor of Halloween? This is a tough one. I am, of course, a former film critic, as well as kind of a film nerd. I am going to go with an old reliable, which is Rosemary's Baby. Roman Polanski's uh, classic film starring Mia Farrow is a woman who comes to believe that she has been impregnated by the devil uh, as the result of a conspiracy with uh, involving her husband and her neighbors in a beautiful, you know, Manhattan apartment building. Oh, you're pregnant? No, not yet. Oh, you're not religious, my dear, are you? It is a movie that scared the hell out of me when I was probably 12 years old, which is far too young to watch Rosemary's Baby Kids, but there you go. (laughs) And of course, by the time I came to it, Roman Polanski, the director, had already been accused and convicted, in fact, of terrible crimes. You know, he had sex with an underage girl, which forced him to flee to Europe, where he has remained in exile since then. It's been an ongoing story that kind of comes in in waves of controversy. But certainly with the rise of the Me Too movement, Polanski has once again been, been really called out for his uh, hideous behavior. It's really problematic, of course, because Rosemary's Baby is a brilliant film about a woman who is being victimized by men close to her. It's one of those problematic things about art that you can find 
the artist to be uh, horrible or, or capable of, of committing horrible acts and yet recognize the, the power in the art as well. And it's, it's scary as hell because it's so quiet and it's a very lonely movie. You know, um, you feel that kind of urban loneliness that the, that the main character is going through. Yes, it's been a very long time since I've seen that movie, but your your bringing it up reminds me that maybe I should maybe I should rescreen it this Halloween. Uh, speaking of that, stay tuned later in this podcast. We are going to talk about more horror films. CJ Lias is going to weigh in with some of his favorites, and I might share mine. All right, Casey, thank you so much for joining us. We will talk to you next week. Yes, thanks a lot. As always, you can read more about all the stories and issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. The Saratoga County city of Mechanicville is playing a chess game. Its opponent? A small family of beavers. And the beavers are definitely winning. The city gets its water supply from a single reservoir. And the beavers are hell-bent on damming the lone tributary that leads to that reservoir. And boy, are they busy. Reporter Kathleen Moore went on a field trip recently to see the beavers' handiwork and to find out why it's such an issue for city officials. What's the problem with beavers around here? A beaver takes a nice flowing stream and turns it into a pond, which creates this amazing wetland, uh, which supports lots of wildlife and you know, different kinds of plants and things, but involves removing the trees, like birch trees, for example. And also, without that flowing water, the water does not get to the water plant. Yes, that specifically poses a risk to the human population in that our drinking water is threatened, right? Right. (laughs) This particular family of beavers really wants to turn this particular stream into a pond, Okay, so we're talking about Mechanicville, right? Yes. Okay, so you recently went on a bit of a an adventure with uh, one of the officials there who's in charge of making sure the beavers don't threaten the drinking water. So what was that like? So whatever you grab, you're not necessarily going to get out. Oh, it was beautiful. So Tony Gotti and I walked along this wonderful forest. You can see why the beavers would love to live there and turn it into a beautiful wetland. We hiked through the mud and found different beaver dams all over the place (laughs) that they are using to try to stop this stream from reaching the city water reservoir. I see what you mean. You're trying to get that big one out, but it's woven in. Yeah, but look at this is the part I wanted to tell you. Look at what he does to patch to keep the dam from leaking. Yeah. Right? One of the things that you noted and that that Mr. Gotti noted as well is that beavers can build those dams pretty quickly, right? Like he'll go in and tear one down. He describes kind of, well, you were there in the video there. He describes what it takes to, to kind of pull one apart, but he'll go back in a matter of days or weeks and he'll find a new one, right? Yeah, they build dams every night. They can replace a dam in two nights. Wow, they're marvelous engineers. I think he was totally impressed by them. I think he feels really bad when he has to kill one. So there's the thing, right? So what do we do about the beavers? Like you can go and take dams apart till you're blue in the face, but that doesn't take care of the problem, right? Right. Although it sort of does. Um, Like this year, they've had to kill three beavers. 
which might sound like a lot, but when you think about the fact that they have this huge miles and miles of stream, there's probably hundreds of beavers living up there. And there's only a few that are building the particular dams that are causing trouble for the city. Now, of course, just a little segue here. We have a pretty interesting history in this specific region vis-a-vis the beaver. I mean, the whole fur trade industry, Albany was a, a fur trading town, right? Yep. The beaver was nearly, uh, nearly hunted to extinction because of their beautiful fur. So that's they why were... it's protected. The, the beaver is a protected species, but it is not endangered. It's, it's, it's doing well. As, as the state put it, there's a, there's a vibrant, thriving community of beavers. So there's, it's not like uh, one or two beavers being trapped here and there is going to you know, have a major impact on the total population in New York State. Now, mm-hmm. in other parts of the country, like in the West, they have huge water problems and they've been trying to restore the beaver population there because they think the things that beavers naturally do could help with the water situation. But we do not have that problem in New York State. We have lots of beavers. You mentioned, too, that, you know, cities like Albany have problems with beavers, but they have kind of a more resources, I guess, to fight the problem. Yeah, so they have drones that fly over the the streams that go to their water reservoirs. Uh, and mm. it's also important to note that obviously Albany's bigger, they need more water, so they have larger water reservoirs, which have a lot of streams going to them. So mm-hmm. if the beaver were to, if a beaver were to dam up one stream leading to one of Albany's reservoirs, it wouldn't cause the tremendous problem that it causes Mechanicville, which only has one main stream. And they also have a lot of, um, this, is, this is fascinating to me, I had no idea and I, I need to interview some of them. There are fur traders still existing uh, who trap beavers. Obviously, you have to get a permit to do that. And those permits are regulated. But you can get a permit to trap beaver in the Albany Reservoir area. Hmm. And that's how they control their population. Interesting. So modern day revenants come and help. Right? Right? Well, let's hope there's not, you know, similar uh, bear attacks like has happened in that movie. But um, (laughs) anyway, so one of the other videos that you came back with when you were reporting on this story was a video of the traps that they use, which frankly look terrifying. Oh, my God. This is the biggest you can get. Approximately 12 by 12. Okay. These are uh, 30. Tell me about how they, you know, what they told you about them. So I have seen over the course of years, a lot of people demonstrate for me dangerous things. I've never seen people that careful and concerned as they demonstrate the thing for me. I mean, there were two of them and they're talking to each other and making sure that different safety things are in place before they do different things. At any moment, I was afraid it was going to cut off one of their hands or something. Um, well, that would have been a quite a different video on TimesUnion.com oh, right yeah. there. Right? That hole is a sprint. We do that on both sides. This is a trap that when the beaver is swimming along, obviously they're swimming headfirst, and they stick their head in to the dam where they've broken the dam to make a hole so that the beaver would come and they've stuck the trap there where the hole is so the beaver sticks its head in and the trap instantly slams down hair trigger i can't stress enough how instantly it is and they showed me with a one inch thick piece of plastic pipe that was shattered so fast wow 
it's a, it's a serious trap. What are the solutions that are kind of non-lethal besides, you know, wading in there and taking the dams apart with their hands? Are there any, are there any solutions that are viable at this point? Well, there, there is. If you have a creek that's more than four feet deep, and if you look at the photos we have of the guys standing with the hip waders, you know, in the creek, the creek is only coming up to maybe, I mean, maybe a little bit more than their knees. It's not, it's not four feet deep there, not, not even close. But if you have a stream that's deeper than four feet, um, you can take a huge pipe, basically, um, and you break a hole in the dam, you put the pipe in, and then you run the pipe another, let's say, 20 feet, and you put mesh in so that the beaver can't get into the pipe. And then you you try to persuade the beaver by your placement and so on to build their dam over and around the pipe. So the water continues to go through, but the dam is still there, you see? It's kind of like fooling them. Right. But that's why it's got to be deep enough, because it's if they hear the water, then they know that there's still a problem. Gotcha. And they could, and that's why it also has to be long enough because they could just keep building and they will just keep building the dam wider and thicker until they eventually cut off the running water. So the water has to be deep enough and long enough. And unfortunately, in a lot of this particular stream, that's just not the case. Although Tony Gotti does intend to pipe part of the stream. Interesting. So we'll have kind of a second part of this story, maybe somewhere down the road, <laughs> whether that works spring, or not. In the spring, he's hoping to do that. But it's more for a lot of other reasons, you know, like the salt runoff. You don't want salt to run off into the into the water that you're going to use and trying to control culverts and so on. They're probably going to have to just keep trapping beaver. A never ending game of chess, as you described it. Right, right. After the break. What's your favorite scary movie? Times Union film buff C.J. Lias has a few recommendations for your Halloween movie night. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Ranieri's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. For many of us pop culture nerds here at the TU, Halloween night is a great time to kick back with some candy and take in a scary movie. I'm a big fan of the horror genre myself, as is features writer C.J. Lias. I pulled him aside recently to get some ideas for this year's choice of Halloween movie. But listener beware. This next segment gets a little spooky. So recently, and this is a very unscientific poll, I'm going to kind of throw that out there, but a a, a poll nonetheless, or a survey rather, found that New York was the second deadliest state 
if you go by how many people are killed in horror films that are set there. It's Kathy's body under the wax. I knew it. I knew it all the time. The majority of the murders came from House of Wax, which is a 1953 movie. Apparently 176 characters died in that movie. What do you make of that? It doesn't shock me that New York would have a high ranking there, but the number one was Pennsylvania. Yeah. And I wonder, is this all the M. Night Shyamalan effect? Like, is it everyone who died in his movies? Are they counting them as horror movies? I don't know. What happened in Pennsylvania? In Pennsylvania, it says the highest body count films are all zombie films, The Land of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Night of the Living Dead. Welcome to a night of total terror. <laughs> night of the Living Dead is still George A. Romero. You can't get past that. I mean, he's he was the king for a reason, as low yeah. budget and as that was. Night of the living dead, the dead. I want to know, what are your favorite horror films of all time? Everybody's got a different definition, I think, of what horror film is, whether you're talking straight, supernatural, monster, ghost kind of thing, or the slasher genre, or psychological horror, those kind of things. So all under that whole umbrella is what I'm thinking. I'd have to say, you cannot deny The Exorcist. I mean, it's, it's always on everyone's list and there's a reason for it. It's never surpassed. Yeah, that movie scared the living daylights out of me. I'm not gonna lie. Two, there's two movies that really like get me. One is Poltergeist from 1982, mm -hmm. starring Joe Beth Williams and the guy from Coach, Craig Nelson. And the reason why that movie terrifies me so much is because my mother let me watch it when I was five years old. <laughs> You know, and I think that's a lot of people's stories. It's something that scares you, maybe it's because you watch it far too young. It terrified me so much that I had to bring the toy clown that I had in my room. I took it and I brought it down the hall and I put it into my brother's room so that if the clown had to eat someone, it would eat him first. That's how much that movie scared me. Um, the second one that I uh, would peg as something that was uh, that's a favorite is the movie The Descent, which if you haven't seen it is a movie about uh, a group of women who they're like cave explorers, like spelunkers, I guess you could call them. There's only one way out of this chamber and that's down the pipe. They go to these mysterious caves in North Carolina and they find some unsettling, horrifying things down there. And there is one scene in that movie that is a jump scare. I'm not going to give anything away if you haven't seen it. Have you seen it? I have not. I, okay. I knew about it, but I haven't seen it. I was watching that in my apartment in New York City with the window open. And I lived in this building that had a courtyard. So like anything that you said at a loud volume would be heard by everybody who lived there. And this jump scare scene happened and I wasn't prepared for it. And I screamed, but I didn't just scream. I like, it was like an extended scream that came out of me and that would not stop. It had, it just kept coming like until all of the air in my lungs was expended. That has never happened to me in any movie ever before. So I have to credit that one as being one of my favorites. To me, a horror film is something that gives me like a really big jump scare like that, that literally takes the wind out of me. But to you, what makes a 
a horror film good or a Halloween themed movie? What makes it good in your estimation? If it creeps me out and it continues to long after I watch it, that to me, my personal view, here's something I watched as a kid. And this is what I can say. This is one of my all time scariest movies. It's a TV movie mm. from the early 70s. It was originally and it starred uh, Kim Darby and Jim Hutton. It was called Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. You know, this is really a terrific house. Ooh, I haven't and got that one. They, they remade it a few years ago. It was a theatrical feature, which I did not see. But it is about this couple buy this old house and they're fixing it up. But there are, I don't want to give out too much, but there are demons in the house who come out in the dark. Like, I, I remember having had the blanket up just so when I was sleeping and something happens that has to do with the grates of the, the heating grates and the, the ventilation system. And that, that, for a while, I wouldn't go near any of the, the grates in my house. And it was, <laughs> it still gets me to this day. And I think it's because I watched it when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, other films that I've really enjoyed recently, I really like Jordan Peele. I think he's a very effective storyteller when it comes to like thriller and horror, like Get Out and Us were tremendous movies. Anything with Patrick Wilson in it, Previously, he was kind of a character actor, but now has become a quote-unquote scream king, like Insidious, The Conjuring. Anything with him in it is automatically terrifying to me. Evil Dead 2 is just a classic. I have the whole Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness. Yeah, I'm a big fan of those. <laughs> and I would go back to, and I actually I'd watch these at any time, not just Halloween, but the classics that you, you think you've seen a million times, even if you haven't, but watch Psycho again. And it is so effective and so innovative still when you watch it for yeah. something that is 60 years old now. The original Frankenstein and especially Bride of Frankenstein, the James Whale movies, they're just unsurpassed in so many ways mm -hmm. after all this time. One of my favorite recent ones was, I don't know if you've seen It Follows. I, I loved I, that film. I'd heard about it, knew about it. And when I finally watched it, it was one of those, how did I, how is this not huge? thing it's gonna follow you somebody gave it to me and i passed it to you i just found it i don't want to sound reductive and say this is all it is but it totally flips the the cliche of teenagers being punished for having sex aspect of slasher movies yeah it totally flips it on its head and gives it a whole new dimension and it's a really really well-made movie um, Amazon has turned out some really good horror films. Summer. This one started out just like the last one. So uh, it's called Black as Night. It's a vampire story set I in... That was on my list. I haven't seen it, but I recently yeah. had read about that. Hey, leave him alone! It's a vampire story set in Louisiana, um, and it is a very powerful story for a number of reasons. I mean, it's kind of like on the surface, it's kind of like a silly vampire, and, and it's funny, and there's, you know, humor in it. But, uh, you know, when you kind of look past that and look underneath it, it, it sends a very powerful and very scary message about what people of color in this country are facing. So I highly recommend that one. All right, let's, uh, let's cap it off with one final question, which is, what would you recommend that someone watch this weekend? Halloween is this weekend. What's your recommendation? If I wanna like give somebody something maybe they haven't, haven't seen or don't know about, let the right one in. 
the original Swedish, I don't want to say just vampire movie and reduce it to that, but it is just fantastic. And I don't know if you've seen Goodnight Mommy. No. It's an Austrian movie. It's about a, a soap opera actress who comes home after plastic surgery and her face is all covered in bandages and comes home to her twin sons who they start to believe that's not really their mother. Mama? Ooh. And then it takes a twist. And then it's just, this is one of those things that I think people who don't have kids and people who do have kids probably watch it completely differently. Oh, that's fascinating. I definitely going to put that one on my list for this Halloween. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team in the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Kathleen Moore, and CJ Lias for their contribution to this episode. 